If we went back to Genesis chapter 26, God tells Isaac, and he says, the land that you're in will be given to the descendants of your father Abraham. And he tells them this, and he tells this to Isaac, and he makes additional promises to Jake, but he says, your children, your descendants will occupy this land. If you get into the rest of the book of Genesis, you begin to see stories of how all of that begins to unfold. And in that unfolding, we come across someone named Joseph. And if you recall the story of Joseph, he ends up as a slave in Egypt. He's freed from slavery because of the intervention of God. And, and God divinely brings him into a point where he's actually second in command in Egypt under Pharaoh. And through his work, he actually saves the people of God. It's through his work that, that he's able to bring his family down in a place that was famine. There was, there was no food. There was nothing to eat. The family would have died if not for Joseph. So Joseph saves his family. And in saving his family, he saves the very promises that God has made. So he preserves that promise for the people of Israel, for the people of Jacob, that one day they would have the land. The book of, the book of Genesis ends with these words. It says that, jo that Joseph lived 110 years and then he died and his brothers with him. So the, the generation of Joseph is gone. And following that, you have the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, actually take all of the descendants of Joseph, all the descendants of Jacob, the people of Israel, and he enslaves them. And so for 400 years you have the people of Israel enslaved. Until God comes along at the beginning of Exodus and he actually calls a man, Moses, and he says, you're going to be the one who sets my people free. And he, he brings Joseph to them and through God's miraculous work, through the plagues, through all the different things, crossing the Red Sea, the different things we would read in the beginning of Exodus, God sets his people free. And he brings them on this journey, and the journey is ultimately to fulfill what? The very promises of Genesis 26. The very promise he made to Isaac, that the descendants of Abraham would occupy the land. It took a long time, 400 plus years, but God is in the process of fulfilling that promise. And roughly two months or so, 50 days into this journey, really through the desert, God has been continually providing for them. He has them stop. He doesn't stop for about a year at the base of a mountain that we know as Sinai. And it's at this mountain, at this pit stop, that God is going to begin to reveal to them the law. And that's where we pick up Exodus 19 and 20. And this is a long pit stop. Like I said, it's, it's nearly a year they're going to sit at the base of this mountain. When they have a promise, they have a destination of where they want to get to, and yet God is going to have them sit and wait it's a long, a long pit stop for them, and it's, it kind of makes me wonder what was going through their minds at this time. You know, when I, when I travel, if I go to see family, if I go on vacation, my mindset is get to the destination as quickly as you possibly can. You pull off an exit because you need gas, and you see the little sign on the side of the road that says, like, gas is a mile and a half away. I'm probably getting back on the highway because I'm not taking that detour. Like, that's too far off my path. So I'm wondering, what are, these, what are these people thinking? They've just been in slavery. Now they're coming out. They've seen all the things that God has done. What are they thinking in this pit stop at the mountain? But what we'll see, I think, as we look at Exodus 19 and 20 and then make connections back to Christ, 
is that this stop for them, while long, is foundational. Not only to who they are, but to who they belong to. Ultimately, as what we'll see when we get into Exodus 19, is that this stop was meant for worship. If you recall Moses, when he approaches Pharaoh the first time, what does he ask of them? He says, Pharaoh, can you let the people of Israel go into the wilderness for a few days and worship? You know, for 400 years, the people of Israel have not been able to worship appropriately. They've not only been enslaved, they've not only been impressed, but they can't even worship their God the way they would want to worship their God. Equally, their God, Yahweh, has not been worshipped in the manner that he desires to be worshipped. And so this, this event of Exodus 19 is really a matter of God bringing them to this mountain, saying it's time to worship. It's time to worship, and in worship, you will see who you are and who you belong to. So God gets right to the point in chapter 19, 3 through 6. He lays the foundation for giving the law. We'll read it here. It says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all of the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Each of us has a particular struggle in life. Each of us has things in life that are, are probably fairly discouraging, whether it's circumstances, whether it's, it's situations that we've been in. And if we can think about those for a moment... Think about those things in life that are the most discouraging, that are the most draining. And they could be physical mental health issues, they could be financial concerns, they could be relational concerns, family struggles, job frustrations, that you know, you're making big life decisions and you don't know what to do. Or maybe there's just a general fatigue, you're just tired. And imagine with me, you, you're going through this situation in life, and you, you approach someone, a friend, a family member, and you tell them about what's on your heart. You, you reveal to them what's bothering you, what's discouraging you. And their response to you is not very encouraging. In fact, what they do is actually accuse you of doing something wrong. What they do is, is actually use belittling or non-sympathetic words. Or maybe even they, they're just apathetic to your problem. They're apathetic to what's going on in your life. So what's, what's the heaviest thing on our hearts, what's heavy on our minds, people just dismiss. Or they turn it around and say, the reason you're in this is because it's your own problem, you brought it on yourself. It's not very encouraging for us. It's, it's similar to those situations where maybe you've, you've set a goal in life. You want to accomplish something. And you're in the midst of kind of climbing that ladder to reach that goal, and you realize all the weight of trying to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. And then somebody comes along and they kick the ladder out from under you. And then they point at you and say, the reason the ladder got kicked out is because of you. It's your own fault. And they blame you for what happened. Notice the words of God 
in this passage, though. Think of what everything, think of everything Israel's gone through. They have been through slavery, oppression for 400 years. And God's first words to them as they're traveling into the, to the, towards the promised land is not one of accusation. He's, he's not belittling them. He's not calling them stupid for being stuck in slavery for 400 years. He's not blaming them for what they've done. He's not calling them pathetic. Instead, what we see is grace. We see grace where God has brought them out of Egypt and he's brought them to himself. He has set them apart. And you see there in verse, in verse 5, he says he calls them his treasured possession. Of all of the nations in all of the world that God could have chosen, he chooses these people. He chooses these people to be his, to be his possession. And he's given them a new position and, and they can begin to understand who they are and what they're meant to do. You know, it's oftentimes when we think of the law, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we don't consider grace in the midst of law. But really the context and the framework for God speaking to Israel is one of grace and it's one of worship. We don't consider that. Oftentimes we think it's just a list of rules that Israel is meant to follow. But in fact, the law is filled with grace freely given to Israel. It's how Paul can say in Romans 7 that, that the law is holy and he delights in it because there's grace there. You know, the word treasure possession, it's a good translation that the ESV has. It, it literally refers to a king who has patiently stored up wealth and finds value in it. So in the same way that a king would look at all the wealth that he's accumulated over the years and just values it and treasures it, in the same sense, God, for Israel, has patiently waited and is valuing and treasuring his people, the people that he has set apart. The remainder of chapter 19, we're not going to look at in detail just for sake of time. It, it's this incredible display by God. This, this incredible thing where God comes down on the mountain and he consumes the mountain in smoke. He, there's thunder, there's lightning. There's just this wonderful, incredible display of his power. It would make the greatest firework display we've ever seen look like one of those little sparklers you hand to a kid. That's, that's the display, and the people are able to see this and react because this is holy ground that God is on. They, they go so far as to say that the mountain itself has been consecrated. There are only two people who are allowed up the mountain. That's Moses and Aaron, no one else. They go through these rituals of, of cleansing themselves in order to recognize and see how holy this is to be in the presence of God. And it's within this setting of grace, of worship, that ultimately God speaks. And we like to skip over this section. I mean, we'll read the Ten Commandments because they're interesting. They're things we hear even from a young age as a kid. But the, the rest of the law, about 20 chapters worth of Exodus, is just Jesus, or it's just God giving the law. God speaking the law. And, and we like to skip over this section because it's, it's kind of frankly, it's kind of boring in some ways. It's not as exciting as the stories of Exodus. It's not as exciting as all of the stories of the Old Testament. So we flip a few pages and we get through the law sections and we get to some more exciting things. But for Moses and the Israelites, this is, this is incredible that God has spoken to them. 
This is something fascinating for them. It's something beautiful. So much so that there's an entire psalm, Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, is a poem dedicated to the beauty of the law. That the law is a gift. And it's tough for us to wrap our minds around because we're not Israelites living in the ancient Near East. We, we didn't grow up in that time, so we don't understand the context and the framework of this. You see, in that time, people were desiring incredible, incredibly to hear their God speak. When you think of all the different gods that were around, whether it's in Egypt or other areas in that, that time, they, they really wanted to hear from gods. You can actually find examples of prayers that were written during this time to false gods where the whole content is just wondering whether or not God's angry with them because they don't know. They want to hear from their gods. And so they would actually set up orders of priests to these false gods, and their whole objective was just to interpret things around them so they could understand what the gods were talking about. So they would get into simple things like evaluating the stars. They would look at the stars, and hopefully they gleaned some clues or some signs from the gods. They would, they would take oil and water and mix them together, and as the oil and water mixed, maybe it came up with something weird, like a, a weird sign or symbol that would show them something about God. If you've ever seen the Harry Potter movies, there's a couple of scenes where they actually are looking at like dirt in a cup and they're making interpretation from that. It's that idea of like divinations. You're looking to find symbols and signs. Probably the grossest thing they did was they would sacrifice animals, but pro before they actually sacrificed the animals, they would rummage through their intestines to see if they could find something from the gods. Just think of... Think of Think of having to go through the intestines of a goat in order to see what God's trying to tell you. Like, that's what these people were doing. That was, that was what they were trained to do. Because the, in the ancient Near East, they wanted to hear from their gods, but as we know, the false gods didn't speak. There were no words. Nothing came from the gods. And so the fact that Israel's God, Yahweh, speaks is an incredible privilege for these people. Their God actually speaks to them. I don't know what happened there. Must have hit a button. Um, but the fact that God speaks to them through the law is incredibly important for them. And they value it. They see the beauty in it. And there's a few reasons why. Really two, two main reasons why. First, in God speaking through the law, what he's doing is he's covenanting with his people. You can see it in verse 5 where it says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasure possession. So in God speaking to them, he's, he's saying, I have already saved you. I've taken you out of Egypt. And now I want to have a relationship with you. I want to actually be a, a part of your life. I want to be covenanted with you in a relationship. So then when we think of law, we have to think of it in terms of grace and gift. Because God has already saved them. He's already brought them out of Egypt. He's already brought them out of bondage, out of oppression. And now in giving them the law, he's saying, this is this relationship we can have. And here are the boundaries of that relationship where you can flourish, where you can thrive in covenant with me. And other nations could then look at Israel and see what the, what the people were supposed to do. And ultimately were to see what God was really all about. What the true God was all about. The true God has spoken, whereas these false gods can't speak. And the true God has spoken, and here's what the true God has said. And so Israel is living out then what God desires for them. 
And the invitation to covenant, which is really interesting, it's not earned. Notice that. Notice, notice the very words of verse 4. You, are, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That is all of God. God bringing them out. The salvation that Israel has was not earned by these people. The covenant relationship that God has with them is fully of grace. It's fully because God desires it. So it's a grace and a gift that God would want to have a relationship with Israel to see them thrive, to see them grow, to see all the blessings that God would give them, the land, the descendants, all of the different things that God has in store for them, and perhaps the greatest blessing, and, and really the second main thing we want to look at in terms of God speaking the law, is that these people now have a privilege of representing God to the world. That, that's, what's God, that's what God is doing. If you look at verse 6, it says, you shall be a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So not only is God calling them his treasure possession, but now he's giving them a purpose. He's giving them a, a reason to be his people, and that is ultimately to represent him to the world. That was what Israel was supposed to do. He's redefining their purpose in this moment, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, giving them this role and responsibility to live out what it means to be his treasure possession. So this is God saying, I am rewriting the purpose of why Israel exists, completely changing what they would have thought it was before. And so this stop at Sinai, like I said, it's to understand who they are as a treasure possession, but it's to understand whose they are, that they are the representative of God on the earth. And he does all of this because he, he speaks his word in the law. So hopefully as we're navigating through this a little bit, the law becomes a bit more than just a set of rules. Law becomes just a bit more than just things that Israel was supposed to do, but it's actually set within the framework of this is the definition of who Israel is, the representative of God on the earth as his treasure possession. If you look at the first, we won't, we won't look at them in detail, but at the beginning of chapter 20 goes through the, the Ten Commandments. The first ten rules that God lays out for his people. And after that, it's really interesting. In verse 18 and 19, he says this, of chapter 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoke, and the people were afraid, and they trembled, and they stood far off, and said to Moses... You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And they had reason to be afraid, because, again, think of the context they're in. Their God is actually speaking. So they have reason to be afraid. And, and if we went through the history of Israel in detail, we would see time and time again how Israel ultimately fails to live up to what they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be God's treasure possession. They were supposed to represent God to the world and represent him well. But they don't. They fail and continually fail, falling into worshiping of other idols from other gods. And while there's exceptions here or there to that, ultimately, God says, enough's enough. And he actually exiles the nation. He actually has... Two countries, Assyria and Babylon, come in and they, they conquer the land of Israel and the land of Judah. 
And they, they carry away the people so that the northern tribes of Israel never return to the land, the land that God had promised. The southern tribes, there's a remnant that God remain, retains that they come back to the land. But nothing's the same. It's not how it was intended to be. Because ultimately, they, they failed to live up to what they were called to do. They failed to live up to being the representative of God. And so for centuries, God remained silent. He no longer spoke. But at one point in time, he does speak again. And he doesn't speak in thunder and lightning. He doesn't speak in law. He doesn't speak in, in stone tablets carried down the mountain by Moses. But instead, one night in Bethlehem, in a place where animals are spending the evening, God speaks. But he speaks through his son. He speaks through a, a young woman named Mary who has a baby. And that baby would be the true Israel. That baby would be the true representative of God of the world. The one who would actually fulfill the law. The one who would do all the things to say, I can represent God well, unlike Israel who failed. The true Israel of God is not the people of Israel, but is Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. The, the fulfillment of all the promises of God. It's, it's fascinating that the ultimate display of God speaking is not those stone tablets, is not the Ten Commandments, but it's actually Jesus. The ultimate display of the communication of God to the world is Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God speaks to us now, not through not through stone tablets, but through a baby in Bethlehem, wrapped in cloth, lying in an animal trough. That is God's word for the world. The true representative of God, unlike Israel which failed, Jesus has now been born, and the scriptures say that he will fulfill the whole law. And you know, it's interesting because just when God spoke on the mountain at Sinai, it was, a, it was a matter of worship. There was worship that was going on at that time. We see the same very thing when God speaks again through the birth of his son. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. God's awesome display of glory was evident at the top of this mountain. Thunder, lightning, 
earthquakes, loud trumpet sounds. And we see that same glory surrounding the shepherds now. And, it, and they're equally as Israel afraid. It says that they're, that they're afraid. Moses' response to the people of Israel is the same as the angels. And he says, don't be afraid. The angel takes it a step further, though, and says, this is good news. Great joy for all people. The, the hosts of heaven cry out, glory to God in the highest. So the worship that had been delayed for so long that, that comes about in the book of Exodus is the same worship that is due to the very God of Luke chapter 2. The Israelites and the shepherds were afraid of seeing the awesomeness of God, and rightly so. You see the glory of God and you're going to be afraid. But what's beautiful is that the fulfillment of what the angel is talking about, that a son is born, that a baby is born, ultimately brings life. You know, we saw in Exodus the people's response. I think I still have this up there. There in 19, verse 19, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. They feared for their lives. They feared death. And again, rightly so. You encounter the glory of God. You should expect to die. But in the birth of Jesus, the baby lying among animals, what do we have? Not death, but life. John chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The baby that the shepherds and those wise men would come and they would worship and they would bow to and they would give gifts to were ultimately given the greatest gift, and that is life. Their life, there is life when God speaks through his son. You know, the, the gospel has so many facets and perspectives to it. I, I've heard it described before, and I think I've even mentioned it in the past. It's like a diamond where you look at different aspects and different vantage points of the gospel, and, and you see brilliance, you see beauty in it. And then you look at a different vantage point, a different aspect, and you see beauty again. Equally beautiful. Jesus' coming has those same dynamics. We, we understand rightly that in the birth of Jesus, God is glorified. God is worshipped. Glory is brought to God, and that's true, and that's, that's good, that's right, that is, that is a true thing. But a different aspect to this that is equally beautiful, that is equally right, that is equally good, is that Jesus came for you. He came to bring you life, and in granting you life, granting life to you, God is speaking through Jesus that says, just as the Israelites now had purpose, they had meaning, they had position. In Jesus speaking and giving you life, you now have purpose and meaning and position. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? In the same way God spoke to Israel in the law and told them that who they were and whose they were, it's through the true Israel, Jesus, our treasure, that God says to us, this is who you are, and this is who you belong to. You are God's possession. You are, you are God's possession, and as God's possession, he has set you apart to be his people. 
And, and in desiring you, he desires a relationship and a covenant with you, just as he did with Israel. And it's within that relationship where we receive blessing upon blessing. John tells us it's grace upon grace that we receive through Christ. So we receive the blessings of grace and love and peace and the grace so freely given in the law, so freely given to us, ultimately did have a cost. Jesus had to purchase that grace for us. And he did it through his blood and his body on a cross. You know, it's so easy for us to fall into this trap of thinking that God is upset with us, thinking that God is actually disappointed in us. It's easy to fall into this trap where we we function or we think that we have to do something special to make God happy with us now. That God's ultimately up in heaven and he's looking at us and he's he's shaking his head like, now, I guess I'll I'll have to forgive you this time. I guess I I said I would, so I'm kind of obligated to love you. We get into these mindsets where we think about justice and we think about wrath. And, and I think Brett, Brett said that earlier, that, that we can get into these mindsets where that's what we focus on about God. But what's true about Jesus is that he is for us. You know, Christmas usually involves some level of gift giving, right? Usually giving gifts to family, friends, people you love. And if, if someone were to give you a gift, and then when you say thank you, their response was, well, I felt like I had to. Is that loving? That, that's not what God does with us. That's not, what, that's, not what God, that's not how God sees us. That's not how he operates. He was happy to send Jesus. He was happy to speak through Christ. He is happy to call you his possession. He is happy to say, you have purpose. You are a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. He, Isaiah tells us that it, it pleased him to crush Jesus for us. It pleased the father to kill his son. Why? Because of me and you. Because he loved us that much. He willing, Jesus willingly laid down his life, yes, for God's glory, but for our good as well. We don't think about that enough. We don't, we don't sit and meditate on that enough, that God willingly gave his life for me. And if you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, this is God for you. This is actually God's words to Moses as he reveals himself to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you've trusted in Christ, you are a treasured possession. You are a a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And God, the God who is full of wrath, full of justice, this is him for you. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. That is God for us because of Christ. You know, this time of year can produce so many mixed emotions. There, there are studies you can read and find where this time of year is typically the most depressing time of year for people. The most instances of overdose and suicide typically happen around this time of year. Because people are sad. 
There, there's family conflicts that happen that make this time of year unhappy. There, there's loss that has taken place where the family you celebrated Christmas with is no longer around to celebrate with. You know, maybe you get together with family every year and you're just envisioning it's going to end in the same fight it always ends in. This time of year is, is not the most exciting for everyone. It's oftentimes depressing, oftentimes discouraging. Maybe you're in the same position you were now that you were last year, and all this season is is a reminder that life isn't what you want it to be. Life isn't how you thought it should be. In all of the cheer, in all of the hurt, Christ is born for you. He's born for you so that you could be recognized as his treasured possession. And that ultimately you could live that life of purpose, that life of meaning. That you are loved, that you are cared for. That he desires to have you in relationship with him. How incredible that that is the story of our God. That he would come as a baby, sacrifice his life just so that he could be with us just so that he could love us and have us live how we were meant to live as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're going to take communion now, and Elizabeth's going to sing for us a song. Um, It's a new song you may not be familiar with. It says, Come All You Unfaithful. And as we sing that, my, my invitation to you is this. Come to Jesus. Maybe you need to come to Jesus for the very first time and receive forgiveness of sins. Maybe you need to come to Jesus for the thousandth time and just be renewed in his grace and his mercy. But the invitation to us is come. Come to Jesus who gave his life so that we could have life.